environmental conversations on creative art, scholarship, and teaching. This, This is, is EcoCast. Hello and welcome to EcoCast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I am Gemma Deer. And I'm Brandon Gomm. So today's guest is Heather Swan. Heather has inhabited many places. She grew up on the prairies of the Midwest, among the pines in the Rocky Mountains, and in sandy towns along the Atlantic. And she has lived as an adult in the thin air of the Himalaya, on the lowlands beneath Mount Baldy on the West Coast, and now in the Yahara watershed. She has been connected to animals for her entire life. Her most constant companion in her childhood was her dog, and she has always felt a kinship with birds and insects. She started writing as a child and has never stopped, but has also worked as a clay studio assistant, a baker, a copywriter and illustrator for an ad agency, and an artist. Currently, she teaches writing and environmental literature at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Heather writes creative nonfiction and poetry and has been published in many magazines, journals, and anthologies. Her first nonfiction book, 2017's Where Honeybees Thrive, Stories from the Field, exposed the problems with industrial beekeeping and won the Sigurd F. Olsen Nature Writing Award. She is currently working on a companion book called Where the Grass Still Sings, which will explore unique and disappearing ecosystems and biomes and strategies to preserve or restore them. Her first full poetry collection, A Kinship with Ash, was published in 2020. So welcome, Heather, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you both. Thank you, thank you for... Uh, setting the bar really high on, on bios. I think I want people to really get, get some nice visual imagery in their bios like you had. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, definitely the most creative bio that we have received. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we're going to be speaking both about Heather's creative nonfiction work um, and also hearing and speaking about some of her poetry. To begin with, Heather, can you start us off by reading the poem Directive from your collection, A Kinship with Ash? I can. Thank you. Directive. In this world of waters, the unleashed waters, we wend our way, not heeding the beacons, while the snow geese wait for ice that never arrives. And the swans move southward, but tarry. Who designed our faulty compass? We must stop now and scrape the soil clear of plastic shards and dead grass, and with our fingernails etch a new map, born of bone, aware of our kinship with ash, with crickets, with wrens. Thank you very much. The reason that I asked Heather to start with a poem is that um, today's root word, in fact, comes from the poem, and that word is compass. Who designed our faulty compass? is the question the poem asks, upon observing the ways our world seems to be going in the wrong direction. So this compass is one of those devices we use for finding our way with a magnetized needle that points north. But compass is one of those old words that has developed a whole host of meanings through its evolution. Compass is also moderation or due limits, 
as when we speak of being within or out of compass. For example, in Shakespeare's Henry IV, Falstaff says that now I live all out of order, out of all compass. Compass can also refer to anything round or circular. So it used to be common to speak of the compass of the earth or of the eye, for example. Compass can mean bounds or limits or range, as when the 19th century philosopher Francis Bowen wrote of the limited compass of the human mind. As a verb, to compass can mean to pass or go around, to surround or enclose, to accomplish or obtain and to comprehend. The word comes from the Latin come, meaning together, and passus, meaning step or pace. And so a compass in its earliest sense meant a stepping together. The etymological history is unclear on how exactly the word developed from this sense of stepping together to notions of circularity and direction. But in the context of Heather's poem, I think it's interesting to note how what she calls our faulty compass might also have to do with a certain kind of forgetting of how to step together with all our non-human kin, and indeed a forgetting of the sense of compass as appropriate moderation or limits. So thank you again, Heather, for the reading, and we'll definitely hear some more poems a little bit later in the episode. But I want to start by um, zooming out a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey as a writer and a teacher? How did you get to where you are today? Uh, first, I just want to say thank you for that beautiful, um, in-depth look at the word compass. That's fantastic and um, wonderful. Thank you. I... Um, have been writing as, as long as I can remember. Uh, my parents were both artists, and I, I think that part of the reason that I was writing stories and poems is that they were busy in their studios and they'd give me like a little project to do, you know, um, and I would be, you know, in and out uh, of their studios, and then I would be outside in the world with my dog. And so these things that, you know, the natural world and, and making things were sort of wound together as what was, what was real life since I was very small. I continued to write um, just, in, you know, in journals and I wrote poetry. I mean, I wrote, I wrote it, you know, and showed it to people. I guess when I was in high school, I, I, I won an award um, when I was in high school for, for poetry writing. But I didn't really think about um, doing an MFA or anything like that immediately because it was just part of what I was doing. And when I, when I thought about going to school, I thought what I really wanted to do was learn other things that I, you know, things that I didn't know at all. Um, and so I ended up studying things like world religions and um, science and, you know, think I was very eclectic in my interests. And uh, there, I, there was a great um, moment. I heard Anthony Doerr one time talking about um, discovering that he was a writer because his, his dean was saying, like, you need to zero in on a major, <laughs> you know, you really, and he realized at that point, like, I can't zero in, I have to write about everything, I have to think about everything. And that's kind of what I realized, too. Um, but yeah, eventually, I, um, I, I decided that I did want to dedicate my, my career um, to, to first, first poetry. So I, I, I got an MFA in poetry. And then um, decided that I wanted to continue and get a PhD in literary and environmental studies. And now I teach um, these things and, and feel very lucky that my life has, has led me here. Awesome. 
So you mentioned, you know, obviously uh, starting writing at a very, very young age, but, um, you know, because a lot of your writing and your interests also deal with kind of the environmental stuff, uh, we're curious if, you know, kind of which came first, uh, you know, your love of, of nature and, and, and environment and, and, and outdoor spaces or uh, the love of writing or, or was maybe there some kind of early coincidings there? It's so, it's so interesting because, I, you know, it's funny, I, I realized that there you know, that like environmental studies can be a, you know, sort of a career decision for me that the natural world is not separate from, Hmm. I've never felt separate from the natural world. And it's honestly because, I mean, I didn't really have a, a lasting human friend for the first, you know, at least 10 years of my life because we moved a lot. And and when we lived um, out in the country, I mean, my companions, were literally all of the creatures that were outside. And, and, you know, my parents were my, I had a little sister, but she was so tiny. Um, and so I did spend all this time with my dog. And <laughs> there's a story that, um, when I was living in Colorado, because we did move a lot, but when it, there was a time when I was living in Colorado, um, and my mom would give me a, um, a big ball of yarn and she would tie it to the, you know, to the fence post outside the house. And then I would take the I would be able to walk up into the mountains as, as far as this, <laughs> as, as this string would allow with my dog so that she would, so that I couldn't get lost and she could find me if she needed to. But I, what it did was it allowed this, this time uh, that I had allowed me to really understand that humans weren't the top of some hierarchy, that we were all just um, participants in this larger reality. Uh, and so my sense that, I think sometimes for people, it's a little bit like a revelation, like, oh, all of these beings also have consciousness, there's sentience, Mm -hmm. you know, for me, it was just such a, such a sort of an obvious, I I was more surprised that people felt that they were superior to all of these creatures that I spent time with, you know, um, I mean, the birds and the insects and the snakes and all the little mammals that were everywhere. I mean, I didn't think of them as being subservient to me certainly I mean I felt that I was like kind of honored to be among them and I don't mean that in a grandiose way to say that I was like some enlightened kid it was just like <laughs> you know, certainly not <laughs> um it's just you know it's where it's where I was so so the other thing was my parents were makers and so they encouraged you know they encouraged me to to draw like they were always you know handing me I didn't have a tv uh, so you know we read books and we um, and so I told stories all the time. The stories were always, you know, <laughs> I have a story from when I was about six that's called a coyote and a lynx. And it's this story about these two animals that try to exist on the edge of society. And yeah, I mean, I, I feel like they were, they were always integrated. Um, this is a, not a great answer to your question. I guess, yes, they no, it's, it's existed uh, together. They were entwined the whole time. That's, I mean, that's really the best answer that we could have hoped for. Um, (laughs) Also, um, you know, kind of when you were talking about uh, being at university and kind of doing all these these very disparate subjects, I was just thinking, well, actually, I mean, that's that's what you need as a writer. Like, there's there's no use kind of learning how to write. You like writing is about you know making connections, and and so kind of having that very like broad interest is is I really think the the foundation for for anyone being a, a good writer. And then just to kind of um, 
go into my like uh, etymological geekiness again. So, so t- t- text, a text is something woven. So the 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 origin of text is the same as textile. So so writing is weaving. And then and then you tell this story of like going off from the gate with this like bit of thread. And I'm just like imagining you kind of like weaving the landscape together as a child, um, and then continuing to do it as an adult through your writing. So yeah, so that's really beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so yeah, we're going to hear some more poems next. So I think we, you've got a few that you're going to read if you want to um, introduce them and yeah, looking forward to hearing them. Sure. Um, so this first poem that I'm going to read is uh, called Pesticide 7, Victor. And I do want to say just a little bit about why it's called Pesticide 7. I remember when I was doing the research about pollinators and pollinator decline, I, I learned that so many pesticides have, the, have brand names like Victor, Warrant, Luna, Liberty. Um, there's just these amazing words, right? And I felt so angry to learn that these companies had taken these words from us and, and you know, labeled these toxins with these wonderful words. So I, I, I decided that I would write a series of poems that took those words back. And so this poem, Pesticide 7, Victor, also comes out of my experience uh, keeping bees. And I, I, I've, I've kept bees only as a, as, a, as a person who just loves watching them. I didn't ever you know, sell honey or um, use them for pollination services. But anyway, I was, I was so attached to them. Um, they're such beautiful creatures. And so anyway, this poem, Pesticide 7, Victor, is kind of about that the handfuls of dead bees she finds after the spraying are not the worst part for the beekeeper it's the bees still struggling that gets to her limping in a circle like someone who's been spinning on a tire swing for too long who then stands dizzy nauseous stunned their wings shudder but they cannot fly these insects whose bodies know the rhythm of the blossoms, the changing angles of the sun, whose alchemy gives us liquid gold, whose love affairs with pistols and stamens give us apricots, almonds, melons. To witness is to be dredged, she thinks. What war do we think we're winning? The second poem I'll read is, so a lot, a lot of the poems in the book, there's the, the series of pesticide poems, and then there are also a series of poems that are really about um, climate change. Um, this is one of the, Climate change poems. Heat, too. Tiny goblets of light cling to branches at dawn, and the meadow shimmers with hoarfrost diamonds as my dog and I make our way east. The cold finally bites my skin after too many weeks of rain. Unseasonably hot, ice skates idle by the door. Meanwhile, Australia burns on TV on the other side of the world. In a photograph, A farmer cradles his lamb, limp and unbreathing, in his arms. No one can warn the animals. And the fire rages on just out of the frame. This next poem after was written from my friend Stella, who lives on the west coast of the United States, and um, there were fires there also. And it actually coincided with, so there were, you know, all of the wildfires. And then she also lost a very close person in her life, and I lost my father. 
And so it was just this sort of overwhelming grief that we were both dealing with. And, and I remember having a conversation with her and hanging up the phone and just feeling like I wanted to find something that some sort of ritual almost to, to find a way out of the grief. So this poem after is, is the answer that I came to after there among the silences find the ghost tree the split black branches making fissures in the clearing. Watch as the fog dresses and undresses the wounds, the separation of bark so raw underneath. The birds can find no purchase. Scavenge the esker, make a circle of stones. Kneel down wreathed in feather and bracken. Prepare to knit yourself back into the world. Great. Thank you so much for, for sharing those. So I, I want to, I'm going to jump back and, and we're going to, I want to talk a little bit about um, and start us with uh, pesticide seven Victor. Sure. Um, and this one's, this was interesting. Cause it's, I mean, obviously I think there are some um, really great um, kind of visuals in there really uh, the pointing to these connections that, that um, bees have to uh, so much of our ecosystems, of our food systems, of all that kind of stuff. But um, for me, this was actually, there was something when I read through this one the first time, um, it it became a very personal poem for me because it, it kind of transported me back to my childhood because um, it was this this memory that like had just kind of, I hadn't really thought about in decades, but all of a sudden I was like, wow, I used to do that as a kid. And so um, I had a friend and I remember us in, in my backyard, we had like um, just dandelions everywhere. And so yeah. just the bees would be kind of flitting about there. Um, and we had these um, two, uh, we had a couple of the, they were like, uh, I don't remember what, what company would have made them, but they were like blocks, like playing blocks, but they were plastic and they kind of would open on a hinge and they were hollow inside. Mm. And we kind of used to, we would go around in the backyard and just, it was weird. Like, this is it's gonna it's gonna maybe sound terrible until you remember I was probably like five or six years old, um, but we would like we would kind of we would step like we would wait for the bee to land on the dandelion and we would kind of just gently step on it just enough to stun it and then we would use the the block to kind of mm-hmm. grab it mm-hmm. and then we we kind of brought them up f- into the front where we had like a gravel turnaround in our driveway and we built up all of these stones and then we would put the bees into like essentially what was like I didn't realize it at the time but like you know what I now would maybe call a coliseum <laughs> um, and so and we would just like watch the bees like do their thing and so we'd have like you know half a dozen to a dozen bees in this like little thing but it was just again it was like the the idea of war in here and and yeah. the um the still struggling, the limping in a circle. Like it was just this weird, like just all these visuals that just kind of flooded back to me. And again, like I I know this like isn't really necessarily relevant to larger discussions, but I just, I think to me it was like the, the great way that, um, you know, poetry and literature and stuff can just kind of really trigger those memories. And and so like when, when Gemma and I were deciding like which poems we want her to read, I was like, I want to talk about this one. Like, um, just cause I, I, that, that 
just that great way that just this weird memory flooded back to me and the way that that this stuff can kind of connect us even though they're obviously not speaking to the same things but anyways that's my two cents i'll shut up now well but, no no um, <laughs> I, you know i love that so much because i think that one of the things i think about all the time as a writer who is is interested in thinking about the environment with people who i, I would like to say forget that when when we're children we have this this sense of wonder, and we're not apologetic about it. I mean, what's striking to me is that you didn't kill them. I mean, many, mm-hmm. many sort of like sciencey children, you know, they take the insect and then they pull off the, the the limbs to see, you know, how it continues to to struggle. And which is to me, I think that's just curiosity, and I'm not judging that at all. I'm just saying that that's. But your story is really fascinating because you were actually taking them and not killing them, but just putting them. <laughs> putting them in this little space so you could observe them. And, but I think that's wonder, you know, I think it's just this fascination with the natural world that we, we, I mean, maybe not everyone has this experience and certainly there are many, because I think about insects all the time. I think many, many of us learn to be afraid of them. Mm-hmm. We've been stung by something. We had a big spider in our room and it scared us as a kid or whatever. And so there's this, this, this shutting down of, of our curiosity about insects. But when I think about writing, you know, there, there are so many different ways to, to communicate um, about the natural world. And, but for me, one of the important things for my students especially is to, to introduce them to, to reintroduce them to this idea of wonder, to say, mm-hmm. this world outside is completely miraculous every second. It's so complicated and we know so little about it. You know, and and to like ignite that curiosity and send them out into the world. So anyway, I'm honored beyond <laughs> beyond telling that that that's, that this connected you to your to your own experience as a child. That's my you know that's that's it. That's the, that's the best thing I could possibly do. Yay! Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I just want to say as well on a slightly uh, less uh, joyful note that 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 <laughs> line at the end this to witness is to be dredged like that just hit me so hard because you know it's this kind of this this uh image of dredging of like scraping everything out and like you know the way that you've encapsulated that that like kind of when we when we see what's happening to the natural world and or rather what we or some humans are doing to the natural world that that it it's us actually that are being kind of dredged from the inside. Um, yeah, I think it's a really, it's a really beautiful poem that manages to kind of like capture that, that loss as well as, as the beauty. So yeah, thank you again for sharing. Thank you. I, I feel like the experience of being sensitive is dredging is such a great image for me, um, for so many reasons, but I, I, I think, um, one of the reasons that I write, I think, is bec- is to deal with the grief. Uh, there's so much. I'm so, I'm in so much pain so often, <laughs> um, and yet I I feel like there's so much beauty, and 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 there's so much we can do, and it's so much about you know becoming connected again. And the connection hurts sometimes, but it's mm-hmm. it's so important, you know, that we we make an effort to to make that connection and to regain a sense of intimacy. I think with yeah. The world that sustains us, right? Sustaining yep. us. Yeah, and that, I think I, that's that's become 
I don't want to say a common thread, but a, you know, maybe a, a common refrain in our podcast with a lot of our guests is this this kind of um, idea of finding that hope, finding that beauty, find, you know, in in kind of the the state of everything. It can be very easy to get bogged down with, yeah. um, you know, the dredged the dredgeness of it. Like to, yeah. to you know, as Gemma was pointing out, and just that kind of. Um, sense of defeat or, or, or whatever. But, um, I think, and that's, that's, I think something else that's really struck me about, and, you know, and this is, I'm just going to kind of jump ahead to, um, with the, the, the poem after, um, again, is I, I think, um, one of the things that really strikes me about your work is the, the imagery of something that's, um, that is dark, but, um, is kind of written in a way that's beautiful. And so you're finding this like nice symbiosis between those things that it's, it's okay to recognize that there's, you know, there, this, this stuff is happening and it's, it's unfortunate and yeah, it bums us out when it does, but, um, that we can find, um, whether it's connectedness or, or hope, um, in, in, um, in that recognition and what we can do. And I mean, just that first line, you know, there among the silences, find the ghost tree. Just, I, I just, that just really, really strikes me. And that all throughout there, like almost every single line is some other just very powerful image. Um, again, of, of you, you said this was about, you know, wildfires and stuff like that. But, um, you know, when you're reading it, there's this kind of like, wow, that's beautiful. And then it's like, wait, no, this is tor- terrible. Wait, should I, why should, why should I think this is beautiful? Right. And, and so I like that, um, that kind of friction, um, that it, at least for me, when I'm reading these and, and hearing you read these, um, that it kind of causes for me, cause there's this, this beauty to it, but also kind of in recognizing that that beauty is coming out of something that's, um, maybe a little bit tragic or, mm-hmm. or, um, unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, and um, the last line of that of the of that poem of the poem after prepare to knit yourself back into the world. I guess that kind of comes back a little bit to what I was saying before about writing and weaving. And I mean, it doesn't necessarily need to be writing, but but that there's something about kind of creating beauty ourselves. Mm-hmm. that allows us to kind of participate in in the the beautiful creativity of, of mm-hmm. the world and and you know there are so many ways to do that that aren't destructive yeah you know, like 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 writing like yeah. reading um like making meaningful things yeah um i mean i think about yeah people who who are gardeners people who who cook beautiful food and they they are aware of that food. <laughs> I mean, those connections are also connecting us to the earth, right? The, the you know the there are so many ways to connect more deeply. I think you know we've, we're living in such a strange time because everything has been online, and and so sometimes you know I just I just ask my students, you know, just go outside and turn off your phones, you know, and just be out there and. And go look in someone's eyes. <laughs> you know, I mean, have a have a conversation with a real human. Just try it out, see how it goes. You know, um, I I do feel like we. There's a great line that Jane Hirschfield, which I actually quote in my my book. Um, but Jane Hirschfield says, um, "I begin to believe the only sin is distance, refusal, all others stemming from this." And the idea that the there's a sin in distance, and of course we're in this time of social distancing, right? Meaning. The not connecting, right? That once we disconnect, we can rationalize hurting things. We can rationalize ignoring things. We can we can let things slide. And I and I feel like my my you know probably my my project as a as a teacher as well as as a writer 
and as a human being is 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 to remember that connection to to deepen it in all ways you know and and to to weave all of those things together like you said I, I love those images that you're returning to about you know the text the textile the weaving and the funny thing is that we have this this fantasy that we are separate but we're not right we're not separate we're the only reason we're breathing is because um, <laughs> there's a tree out there helping us with that, right? Um, yeah. Deeply, deeply connected. Those poems that we've heard have all come from the collection A Kinship with Ash, which I'm sure everyone listening is going to be very eager to go and read now, having heard such beautiful snippets from it. Um, but I just wanted to ask you about the title of that, of that book. Where, where did that come from? Oh, what are you trying to do with that? Um, so <clears throat> A Kinship with Ash is a line from the poem that I read, actually. Um, but I feel like the idea of kinship is one that is being discussed a lot right now. Um, you know, kinning, uh, Robin Kimmer talks about. Um, and, I, and kinship to me, you know, becoming kin is to recognize that that connectedness that we've been talking about. And the thing about a kinship with Ash for me is, is it, it's so, it has many dimensions because I wanted to think about, I wanted to, to sort of bring in ideas of mortality. We will become Ash eventually, or, you know, this, you know, a form that we are not now. And I also wanted it to have some sort of, you know, I, I want I want people to think about our complicity in the destruction that we are seeing. You know, so the kinship with Ash, meaning the kin, kinship with destruction, and but the kinship with Ash, meaning sort of also just the kinship with everything. Uh, the less the rest of that line is a kinship with Ash, with crickets, with friends. The 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 fact that we are all kin, we are all part of this together, and so the book investigates these many these many aspects of, of that. It's, there's certainly, there's, there are poems about loss, but there's, there, I hope people will find lots of um, beautiful connections in there as well. So I would love to talk about your poetry all day, but I do want to have some time to speak about some of your creative nonfiction work during the episode. So the book that you already have out, Where Honeybees Thrive, and the book that you're currently working on now, where the grass still sings. So you told us when we were speaking before the episode that the, these are companion books. Can you give us a short introduction to both the books and to kind of the aim and the inspiration for them um, and, and how they are connected? Sure. The first book was really, for me, a journey about um, trying to figure out why bees were dying. I was, uh, I was keeping bees and was in love with insects and in particular, I was in love with honeybees, and I just spent hours watching them. And the fact that there was suddenly this colony collapse disorder going on, I thought, I want to find the bad guy and figure out <laughs> what that is or who that is. Um, and I quickly learned that, you know, there was not one bad guy, but it was just the, you know, the habits of being that we have with with insects in general, but um, specifically with honeybees. We we use them as pollinators, and so they're a tool for the egg industry. And this is this is problematic for a number of reasons. And so, partly, what I was interested in was, you know, sort of exploring all the ways in which, you know, habitat 
destruction and pesticide use were really obviously bad for not just honeybees, but many insects. But also I wanted to find solutions. And so I, I spent a lot of time looking around at, you know, sort of projects that were doing things differently, scientists that were thinking differently about even how to test the effects of pesticides on bees and wasps and and then farmers that were doing different kinds of styles of farming. And, and so the first book was really focusing on the honeybee, which at the time to me was just an invitation. It was, it was like the gateway bug, my mom always calls it. And, you know, um, you know, if you fall in love with a honeybee, then you suddenly realize that there are all these other kinds of insects and other kinds of bees and pollinators. And, and the, the honeybee is particularly, I'll say it's sweet uh, because it provides, you know, this, this lovely golden liquid that we consume. So it's easy for someone to fall in love with a honeybee. Although lots of people are afraid of insects, uh, especially stinging ones. And so the project of the book was, there were, there were a few things. One was that I just wanted people to, to sort of, yeah, fall in love. Uh, and also to become aware of the, the habits that we have, like pouring, you know, pesticides on our lawns, for example, uh, having lawns <laughs> at all. Uh, and, and to think about the way, you know, we farm. But so, but it was also really to say, there are so many ways that we can, we can shift our thinking and shift our practices. And there are lots of people doing that. And so the second book is really about all kinds of other insects, right? I, I mean, so I felt like the first book was to say, here, look at this cute little bee that does things like, you know, pollinates your strawberry. Um, but the second one is, you know, includes things like beetles that, you know, eat dead wood that help the forest floor stay healthy and dragonflies that can eat, you know, a hundred mosquitoes a day and how we need to have healthy wetlands so that we can have those guys around and, and just, <laughs> I mean, the brilliance of their, their flight abilities. Holy cow. Um, but anyway, so the second book is, is looking at, uh, you know, sort of has all of these, <laughs> you know, they're sort of like insect stars, I guess, you know, I, I have, you know, I have these, these charismatic, or I hope they'll become charismatic. <laughs> Maybe they're not right now. Uh, but I, I show the ways in which those things that we take advantage, we take for granted are so important to ecosystems, right? And how we can't just assume that we can pull these individual characters out of the ecosystem and then not, and still enjoy things like different kinds of orchids and, uh, you know, certain frogs and things like that and how everything is, is really connected. And so, so they are, uh, they're, they're both books that are, written for a public audience. They're books that include art. As you know, I grew up in a family of artists. And so after every chapter, I have a gallery, I call it. <laughs> and the gallery features an artist who's doing something interesting. Sometimes the work is about displaying the beauty of something like an insect, or um, sometimes it's about, you know, it's a concept that, that I feel is so beautifully illustrated. Um, I have a it's interesting now. I think I'm thinking about a quilter that's in my first book, or, or this. I'm sorry, that's in my second book. And and there's something about the idea of quilting right now that I think is really important for us. And that is that, you know, we're bringing together these. Uh, I feel like there are all these sort of scraps, um, you know, things that are that are broken, broken or not whole, but 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 together, um, you know, bringing all these things together, we can kind of make something beautiful again. And I'm just reading this book. I just started this book called Islands of Abandonment. And 
uh, I don't know if you guys have read it yet, but Cal Flynn, um, thinking about recovery, you know, uh, and I think like one of the things I think about all the time is that it takes everyone. It takes all of us, you know, as, as broken as we are, uh, I'll say that, speak for myself, uh, as, as insufficient as we are, maybe as I am. Um, but all of us coming together with our different disciplines and our different strengths. And, um, and that's like a, you know, that's, I, I, I use the idea of mosaics in my first book, but in this chapter, this gallery in my second book, I'm thinking about what quilting is and what quilting can do. Anyway, so sometimes the galleries are conceptual and sometimes they're more specifically about, look how gorgeous this beetle is, (laughs) you know? So, um, yeah. So that's a little bit about those books. Awesome. Thank you. Um, well, unfortunately, we, you know, we'd love to have um, all of the time uh, all day to just keep talking to you. Um, but I think you had one more poem you wanted to kind of share with us to, to wrap things up and then we'll, we'll move sure. to end on a roll. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, this last poem that I'm going to read um, is a poem that I wrote for my mother, who's the potter. This, this, is a, this is a poem that I wrote about growing up in, um, with all kinds of challenges. And, and, and so it, it's apt, I think, for all of us facing the environmental difficulties we face now. The poem is called Bowl. From the mud in her hands, the bowl was born, opening like a flower in an arch of petals. It became a vessel both empty and full. Later, in the kiln, it was ravaged by fire, its surface etched and vitrified, searing the glaze into glass as its body turned to stone. It is at the edge of damage that beauty is honed. And in Japan, the potter tells me, when a tea bowl cracks in the fire, that crack is filled with gold. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's a, a, a great, great bit to end on. So thank you. Um, and thanks again for joining us. So, But it is time to uh, end on a roll. So uh, I've got a 12-sided die here. Okay. I'm going give it, to give it a toss. And whatever question comes up, that's what we're going to ask you. Okay. Great. Uh, okay, well, this is a good one. So uh, number 11, what's a fun piece of trivia about you? <laughs> A fun piece of trivia about me. I slept with yaks. Um, (laughs) In Nepal, I, I was, uh, I was hiking and uh, stayed with this family and they had a really small uh, little dwelling and they all slept in one room around the fire and they put a mat down for me with the yaks. Um, So I had this little mat that was underneath these two giant and the room was not much bigger than the two of them. Um, and so I was sort of like tucked underneath their giant heads and all night long they were, they were breathing and, and <laughs> their sweet breath over me. And it was, you know, it was an astonishing experience for me. I felt very blessed um, to be there with them. But yeah, awesome. looking at the axe. <laughs> that is fun trivia. <laughs> yeah. yeah. On on top of the stuff that we've already had. Sure, I mean the, yeah. the, the the like the thread from the, the gate arm, story yeah. was just <laughs> <laughs> wonderful as well. Thank you both so much. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much for for joining us and yeah, I really hope everyone listening will check out Heather's work. It's really beautiful and important i think so how can listeners find out more about you and your work do you have a website or socials or anything like that i do have a website um and uh so that i'm sure you can find online but i but penn state press is the the press that 
published my, has published and will continue to publish my nonfiction. Um, and then Terrapin Books is the publisher of A Kinship with Ash. And I think both of those books are available um, through, you know, local bookstores. And, and you can also get them at like Barnes & Noble too. Um, so that's how you could find them. Awesome. Yeah, we'll be sure to, to have links to those things uh, in the show notes. Um, as we can do it. So um, yeah, thank you again for joining us. Thank you all for listening. Uh, If you have an idea for an episode, either uh, you want to share your own work or you would like for us to reach out to somebody to have uh, on the the air, um, please, please reach out to us. So you can find us on Twitter uh, at Asley underscore Ecocast. You can get a hold of us uh, through email asley.ecocast at gmail.com. Um, and then our Twitter page has uh, a link tree on there with a, a, a Google form and all that kind of stuff, which is the easiest way for you to submit your po- proposals to us. So uh, thank you. Yep. And if you have enjoyed the show, you can help us to reach a bigger audience by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. Until next time. Bye. Bye.